Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Lake of the Ozarks message podcast. Our prayer and desire as you listen to today's message is that it would be an encouragement and challenge in your walk and relationship with Jesus. If you'd like more information about our church, please visit us online at ccloto.org or download our app in your app store today. Now, let's jump into today's message together. Hey Amen. Good morning. How are you guys? Hey, October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and just as one of the pastors here, I just want to say thank you guys. Um, there's been so many encouraging notes. We've even got some cupcakes and a little bit of lunch. I mean, it's just been phenomenal, and it is just a blessing to be able to serve you guys. But then there's a few of you <laughs> that you want your sinful depravity to overflow into a beautiful month, and you get things like this. And one of my rules that my senior pastor told me is if you ever receive anything, maybe like a note from someone in the congregation and it's unsigned, you know, those like, it's too cold and I don't like this and they don't sign it because then it's like, well, what service did you go to and all that? He would always throw them away. And this is unsigned and I could not agree more when you see just the level of depravity of all I need is 80s music. (laughs) No, no. I need 80s music like I need a colonoscopy right now. Like, get out of that town. So, yeah, if you're new here, you're probably thinking, wow, that's a way to start service right there. So, uh, so thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to appreciate the heart of the gift. Maybe not the heart of the gift itself. And now, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 17. And you guys woke up. You got here on time to talk about the great prostitute. <laughs> Be like, that's why we came to church today. And don't be looking to your left or right. This is, we're talking about what's in the text, okay? I saw that a few of you. Don't do that. And, and I'm only, I mean, if we were in John 3.16, we'd be talking about Nicodemus, but we're in Revelation chapter 17. To be very honest, I was telling somebody this morning after first service, I, I always try to read the whole book of where we're ever going next. I try to read the whole book. Like I've already read Genesis in one sitting, thought through it. That's where we're going next year, right? And when I was doing that with Revelation, this was the chapter that I don't know if I was like excited about preaching or it's like, that's the last one that I want to do. Like more than the bowls of God's wrath, more than half the population is going to die in the tribulation, like the great prostitute. Like, hey, here we go. And so if you have your Bibles and it kind of are, have we, we've been taking whole chapters um, and, and working towards we want to finish this book by the end of the year, get ready for Christmas And then we'll start Genesis in the beginning of next year. So Revelation chapter 17, read with me. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me and said, Come and I will show you the judgments of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls and holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. 
But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. And the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. And this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come. And when he does, when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is the eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour, together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. And they will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful." And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute was seated are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute, and they will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And the woman that you saw is the great city that has the dominion over the kings of the earth. Welcome to Revelation chapter 17. So as we've been walking through Revelation, I've always kind of tried to bring up where there's the different interpretations of how to look at this, completely figurative, symbolic, literal. There's actually one more, and I've been a little bit hesitant to share. Right? The island of Patmos is known for having hallucinogenic mushrooms growing naturally on the island. And there's a small group of people that when they read that, they believe that John just got really hungry and was just tripping out on hallucinogenic drugs. And that's why a lot of this is like, well, this doesn't even make sense. What is going on? They just think he was high as a kite and then decided to write a book. But then you get to that verse that all scripture is breathed out by God And you just kind of in a conflict. Do I really want to say God's over here, high as a kite, giving his word? But this really is one of the most difficult passages in Revelation. Specifically, we'll get to a couple of verses. But when we talk about the great prostitute, it's obviously not a literal, there's going to be a woman. This is a personification of a world religious system that the Antichrist is going to bring. And he's talking again within that seven-year period of tribulation. So we're seeing how he is going to try to win over and control the world. And it's going to look different in the first three and a half years, and it's going to look different in the second half. And we've seen that same kind of thing through the tribulation and what we have already studied. It looks a little bit different on the first half, and then on the second half, it's hell on earth. But what you want to see in verse 2 It says that the kings of the earth, all these leaders, they have committed sexual immorality. And with the wine of that sexual, they're getting drunk off of it. And so very symbolic kind of language. 
But any time that we see any kind of cult or false religion, it's always tied with sexual immorality. Even in the Old Testament days, ancient Israel, you know, dealing with the surrounding nations around them, there would be their, their worship services to those false gods was heavily upon sexual immorality. There would be temple prostitutes, male and female. There would be bestiality within that. And to worship these false gods of Baal and Molech, there would be high levels of sexual immorality in that. And that was one of, I think there's about two things that God, the reason that God destroyed nations around ancient Israel, and he used Israel to be an arm of his judgment upon those nations. One was the high level of sexual immorality, and the other one was the child sacrifice within those worship systems. Now look at America. Thank the Lord that we don't have high levels of sexual immorality and we treat our unborn so well. Do we really think we're going to escape judgment? We have to understand and see that the sexual immorality that is so prevalent in our country, so prevalent in the world, is absolutely tied to a false worship. And we might not think of it that way, but we need to. Because we as humans, we were created for worship. Every theological stance requires faith. The atheist has faith that there is no God. The agnostic has faith that he doesn't know that there's a God. The polytheist has faith in many gods. Or a pantheism means that God's in everything. So there's God in the table, there's God in my shoes, there's God in your chair. He is in everything. He's tied to a material world. That takes faith. The the negative, horrible creativity. I know I don't want to say creativity in a positive manner, but Satan is using the very thing that we were created for to manipulate and use for his own desires. And sexual immorality, I think, has a whole nother, you know, even Paul would say, all the other sins you commit outside your body, but the sins, sexual immorality, you commit inside your body. There's, there's a certain, there's a differing level to it. And even as a student pastor, even now as a lead pastor, some of the biggest struggles that I've had to try to counsel people through is sexual immorality. The weight to go, but the burden and the weight that people still carry included. That was a weight. That is a burden that I've had to carry that somebody who loved the Lord enough to look at me, not just to preach the gospel unto salvation, but to say, you are free in Christ. And, And I think the church isn't doing the best job, I'm talking broad brush holistically, to try to address those things. Hence the pin drop in the room even right now. It's like, wow, we're getting serious real quick. We're only two minutes into this bad boy. Where's he going next? But if the church isn't gonna address it, who will? Same thing with my kids. I want to address those issues with my kids because if I don't, am I going to leave it up to their friends? No offense if you're friends with my kids, but am I really going to leave it up to them to lead them in good, doctrinal, theological, God-honoring truths of what sexuality is? Am I going to leave it up to the bus ride home? Am I going to leave it up? No. 
I want to lead in those conversations. And I think we as the church should lead in those conversations. And the church today, I think, is actually very scared to lead in those conversations because we're going to have to call sin, sin. In sexual immorality, it's where we get the word fornication. Any, any sexual act outside of marriage between a man and a woman, that is sexual immorality. And, and we know there's a, a different connotation to it because even in Scripture, when Paul's writing through the presence and the and, and dwelling of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't say fight sexual immorality. He says flee sexual immorality. He doesn't say to stand up and get that shield of faith and get the sword of the word and, and run. You know, he says flee from that in a sense that it's like, the best thing that you could do is to flee from that. Think of Joseph in the Old Testament when Potiphar's wife grabbed a hold of him and wanted to sleep with him. Did he fight her? No, he could have took her too. You know what I mean? Like he'd have beat her like a, no, time to season. No, what did he do? He slipped out of his coat, lost a second coat, and ran away, naked and afraid of Potiphar. We need to flee from sexual immorality. We need to see the tying that it has to idolatry. Now, we study that in ancient religions around Israel. We think of it with cults that are happening, but it's even for us today in the church that the church is not immune to fornication and adultery. The church is not immune to pornography. But we have to take it even to a deeper level. You know why all of those are happening Absolutely, God wants us to flee from that. But he also wants to eradicate lust from our hearts. And the whole story of Revelation that we are walking through is this trail of events that are culminating in a place that has no sin, in a place where there will be purity, that we will look at each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and understand the fullness of what we were created for, and there won't be any hints of malice whatsoever. There'll be no hints of lust whatsoever. We will see each other in the fullness that God created. But while we're between the already, saved by Jesus, and the not yet, with Jesus, we live in the tension to fight for our purity to fight for our righteousness, to fight for our holiness. And I don't care if you're a teenager or if you've been married for, Stanton's how long have you been married? 55 years. We had marriage night last year and we had, I think it was five families that had been, couples that had been married over 50 years in our church. I thought, what a testimony to us as the body. I don't care if you're a teenager or been married 55 years. The fight for purity matters. Because when we use the things that God has created in us for good and, and think who's the leading person that wants us to misuse the things of God? Satan. And so we see the sexual immorality that is so tied to the idolatry and this, this religious system is going to be well accepted. It's going to be very attractive. It's going to be spiritual, but there's going to be no morality to it. It's actually even today, one of the ways that we can identify cults is not just in their beliefs of, uh, usually cults will attack the Bible, they'll attack Jesus, and a lot of times they'll attack creation. Those are the top three things that they'll attack. But another identifying factor 
of occults is the high level of sexual immorality. And even in our world, this new age, speak to the universe and it'll give it and grab your crystals and rub your stones together, there's a high level of immorality in it. Because whatever feels right for you, do that. And love is love. And how could that be wrong? I had somebody even ask me that argument. Well, how can love be wrong? Like if I love that person, how is that wrong? I said, easy, let's talk about it. I am in a relationship. I'm in a covenant relationship with my wife and we are married. And that is love, correct? Yeah, it's love. I said, can I love my girlfriend then too? Is there anything wrong with that? They stopped like that. The hard part now, the world would say, yeah, it's perfectly fine. And there's no holding fast, again, to the things of God and what he gave us to guard us and to protect us and for us to live and lead in a life. Because John 10.10, we'll end the sermon with it, but understand what Jesus said. I came to give life and life abundantly. But how many times does Satan want to try to deceive us to think that the things of God, we think that God has not given us certain things and like he's withholding from us. He's keeping us from the abundant life. We need to change our mindset and think. Think of uh, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So if the Lord hasn't given it to us, it's probably a protection that you don't need that. That he has given you, as I think it's Peter says, he has given us everything that pertains to life and life abundant and godliness. So if there is something that he, well, why can't I have 700 concubines like Solomon? Because that's not from the Lord. And he has a better plan for our life. And Satan, especially when he is allowed and unleashed to bring his full kingdom in this seven-year tribulation period, he's going to use a religious system. And I think one of the reasons God hates it so much, not only are are these uh, humans created to worship him, creating something else, but even the manner of worship going even back to ancient uh, Israel and the nations that are surrounding that were using a high level of sexual immorality and calling it worship. How? I can just hear God. How dare you call that worship? You are mislabeling. To call that horrendous sin, to call that an act of worship. I think he's even an assault of that. And so we're going to see Satan allow uh, and and bring this religious system that's going to have no morality. Because you need to see the picture that this harlot, it focuses on the connection of the beast. She's sitting upon him. The beast is going to literally carry her. So Satan's going to have his own ecumenical counterfeit, not just church, this whole world religious system. And so in 17, what we see is religious Babylon. And then in 18, what we're going to see is the fall of economic Babylon. But we're going to see it fall, the religious Babylon first, which is pointing to this personification of a harlot, of this prostitute. And look what Satan does. He's using the prostitute for his own desires, which is in stark contrast to Ephesians 5.25 when you think of Christ in the church, which is an analogy of the marriage Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He didn't use her for his own desires. And I'm saying that in a negative connotation. 
He didn't use her for his negative desires. He sacrificed himself for her. He loved her. He served her. He submitted himself to her. Because everybody loves the part in Ephesians 5 where it says, wives, submit yourself to your husband. We love that verse, don't we? Just read one more. Submit to one another out of love. Christ loved the church. Satan, using this religious system, keeping on this personification of a harlot, he uses her for his own desires. So to say, let's, let's say it in the worst way possible. Yeah, let's, let's not pet you know, our, our family, you know, make our, our sin our family pet and, and call it a cute little name. Oh, here's Scruffy. No, let's call it the worst way possible. The most satanic thing that a man can do is use a woman for his own sexual desires. The closest thing to Satan that we could be in that context is to use a woman for our own sexual desires. And the closest thing to Christ we could be in that marriage context is to love her, to lead her, to sacrifice yourself for her, to provide for her, to care for her. That's what God wants to see within the marriage. And so we see Satan with this faux religious Babylon that's combating against, because again, Satan doesn't care. If you want to be an atheist, he don't care. You want to be an agnostic? He doesn't care. You want to worship some, you know, there was a, there was a movement in California uh, not too long ago where they were, their pets were their gods, and they would take them to their little church there and worship their dogs. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm down if they want to sacrifice. No, excuse me. <laughs> I mean, I got a dog for that. Let's go, right? I don't even like that thing. I know somebody's going to get offended. You would kill a dog. He doesn't care what you pick. He just doesn't want you to pick Jesus. Even if you want to choose yourself to be your own God and you, and you are dependent upon your own abilities and your own your position at work and your finances or your own intellect, he doesn't care. He could care less what you pick. He just doesn't want you to pick Jesus. And he will do everything to assault that and he's going to start and allow his own religious Babylon. He's going to use this prostitute for his own desires. And then as John continues on, he, he hears this and he's marveling at it. And the angel kind of looks at him. And he's like, why are you marveling at this? It's almost like when Jesus would give a parable and the disciples were like, this is kind of hard to understand. Well, the beauty of it, the angel explains this to John and he explains it to us. I love that. Some of the really hard parts of Scripture. I love that the angel will come in or Jesus will come in and say, let me explain it to you so you can understand. And so the beast here is the Antichrist. That's kind of an easy one to understand, but it takes it back to Revelation 13. And we have to get specific about it because this is kind of a mid-tribulation event, right at that three-and-a-half-year marker. Because Satan is cast out of heaven, right? And he's thrown to earth. And when that happens... Antichrist at that point will, is just a human, and he's going to be killed. And we see a reference of that, who is, who was not, and who is to come. So here's this death and fake foe resurrection incarnation. And so Satan, when he's thrown to earth, he's going to incarnate the dead body of Antichrist. And that's when he breaks the covenant with the Jews. If you remember, he signs a covenant to start the tribulation so they can rebuild their temple and restart their sacrificial system. But he breaks that covenant at the three and a half year mark and he turns from protecting the Jews. Now he's attacking the Jews and he's killing them. 
even towards the end. That's why uh, when Jesus says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee to Basra, it's because you're going to be under attack from the Antichrist. And so we have this Antichrist, which is the body, but Satan incarnating him. The woman, the prostitute, is this religious system of Antichrist. And we know it's that midpoint because we've already seen this death and false resurrection of the person of Antichrist. And then you see in verse 9 where it says these seven heads are seven mountains. And, and again, one of the uh, uh, ways to interpret the book of Revelation is it's called the preterist view, meaning that it's all already complete and it was only written to those up to 70 AD when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, that there's no future event that we're waiting for. And they would look at that verse in verse 9 and say, oh, that's a reference to Rome because, well, the first part says this calls for a mind with wisdom but the seven heads are seven mountains. And historically, we know that Rome was built on seven hills. And so they want to run quick to say, oh, that's Rome. There's the reference. But there's a Greek word for hills. John wasn't mistaken. He could have used that word. But he's very specific here, and he says mountains. And so is it a reference to Rome? I do not believe so. Because if you look at verse 10, allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, they are also seven kings. And even further, you know, again, allowing, if, there, if you're ever in a difficult part of Scripture, look at other parts of Scripture. Allow that to interpret it. And so in Daniel chapter 2, talks about a reference of mountains as government organizations. And so there are times that mountains are referred to as figures of governments. And so I think it is referencing these governments. Now, Verse 10 to 11, I'm just going to tell you right now, like when you think about them, 17 being one of the most difficult passages, these two verses are some of the most difficult in all of Revelation. And I am not going to step out in like full assurance of this is exactly what it means. Like out of how many verses in here? 18. I think I did the most study on these two. And there is just a spectrum of ideas of what this could mean. And, and the one that was the most common that I think is the leading thought that I would agree with, because sometimes I don't, but I would agree with, it says five have fallen. So it's talking about these seven mountains or these seven kings or these seven figures of government. Five have fallen, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece. One is, and that is Rome. Rome is the ruling authority at this time when John is writing. But why I don't hold to a preterist for multiple reasons uh, here is one, and the other has not yet come, pointing to a future event that John is looking to that has not happened. One has not yet come, and I do believe that's going to be a revived Roman Empire-esque in the first three and a half years of tribulation. I think that's what he's pointing to. And then it says an eighth, but it belongs to the seventh, and that's going to be the last three and a half years of tribulation, and that's almost the kingdom of Antichrist is how you could describe it. But more than anything, look at verse 8. Where we're trying to understand the first seven, where's that going? But look at verse seven, 8. It says, goes to destruction. So even when I don't have full assurance on the other parts, I'm not going to let what I don't know affect what I do know. And what do I do know? The beast will be destroyed. The beast absolutely will be destroyed. So it's not that Satan gets to set up his kingdom and, oh, that's it. We just all, everybody's got to live in this immense sin and under crazy persecution and the wrath of God. This is just, no, no, no. The beast will be destroyed. 
the very thing in our heart of wanting justice and redemption will happen. And what we have to understand is this is God's plan that we will see here in a second. But this is God's plan. This isn't what Satan is doing. He's just allowed to at this moment, but there will be an end to him. There will be an end of sin. There will be a day where the the burden of the, the sin nature that we're born in and the burden of the struggle for purity and righteousness in us, that will be lifted. There will be a day when Christ comes and brings all of this to the full of his plan. And again, that's what we have to understand. The book of Revelation is God's plan, not Satan's. So many Christians walk in fear because I think they have their eyes on the wrong person. They're trying to find the mark. They're trying to find the Antichrist. They're trying to find all the events of end times. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. This is his book. It's a part of his special revelation. And then you see these 10 kings, which we've talked about before, is this 10-nation federation that's going to kind of put their hats in with the Antichrist. And again, we don't know exactly who they are. A lot of us are trying to watch the news, counting up 10 nations. You know, we were at seven. We need three more. We got six. Anybody else? We need four. Any, Any takers? Whatever their identity is, their actions are clear, and I think that's where we need to focus. They join Antichrist in war against Jesus, and they're almost going to be kind of his minions, and it's going to be widespread. It's not going to be the small little cult and everybody. The whole world is going to fall to this, and just as much as religious Babylon is going to be this great thing, so is this economic Babylon, and you'll see all through 18 how those in that day are just so after and, and find so much hope in this physical Babylon city that I believe is future. Because in verse 15, it says the waters. And he explains that that's the scope of this religious system. It's going to be worldwide. It's not going to be just this small little cult that's like, oh yeah, it's out there in the hills and they all live together. No, this is going to be widespread. But look what Antichrist does. He's going to turn on the prostitute. He's going to destroy her. And he's going to have that 10 kings do it for him. And so he is going to destroy her. And why? Well, turn to 2 Thessalonians. It's one of the books that we kind of have to study alongside Revelation. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul is writing, I'm starting in verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Let's focus on that real quick. Don't let anybody deceive you. Don't let an internet pastor deceive you. Don't let this pastor deceive you. Because a lot of people are looking and thinking, oh, the Antichrist is here, or there's already the mark and all that. Don't let anybody deceive you. Paul is telling you that in any way. Like, hear the encouragement and the correction, the command that Paul has given us. Do not be deceived in any way. That day will not come unless that son of lawlessness, or the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction is revealed first. So until he revealed, like we talked about with the mark of the beast, everybody wants to know what the mark is. It's his mark. It's the beast's. So if we don't have a beast, we don't have a mark. He's the one that gives it significance. You can kind of use the analogy of Michael Jordan, the number 23. Before him, that number meant nothing. And even after that, there's nobody that could give it the value that Michael Jordan has, because he is the goat. 
There's imitators. It's his number, right? I don't think any team should be able to use that number. He's that good. But it's his number. So he's not been revealed yet. So we don't have to walk in fear and think because that's what people in this church were thinking. Did we miss it? Did these events already happen? No. Do you know who the man of lawlessness is, the son of destruction? No. Then don't be deceived. Don't let some internet, Instagram reel fool you into thinking that you've missed out on the rapture. And oh, they're there. A lot of people send them to me. What do you think about this, Pastor? I think you need to go to bed. <laughs> Quit just scrolling and go to bed. Sleep. No. Verse 4. But listen to him. This, this son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple, proclaiming himself to be God. That's the abomination of desolation. That's the sign that Jesus said to the Jews. His disciples were asking him, hey, when's all these end times going to happen? When you see that sign, you need to flee. You need to flee, is what he tells them, to the wilderness, to a place that is prepared for you, which is Basra, and we've talked about that. But think about this. Satan is going to use this religious system, but then destroy it because he's going to get jealous of his own religious system that he's going to use. You know, even Jesus said, a house divided cannot stand. And whose idea was it to destroy this religious Babylon? Look at verse 17. For God has put it in their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And because they have put their claim in with Satan and, and were with him, yeah, he's gonna, God's going to put it in their hearts. Yeah, give all your power to him. And I'm going to cause this house to be divided. I'm going to use half of this evil house to destroy the other half of it. And then all that authority putting on the beast, on the Antichrist, on Satan, then I'm going to destroy it all. Again, this is God's plan. This is his sovereign plan. We do not need to walk in fear. We do not need to walk timidly in the world. We need to walk boldly. We need to walk confidently, holding fast to multiple promises. One being, the wrath of God is not destined for us, Scripture says. We don't have to worry about, is this going to be poured out on us? Am I going to have to live through this? Hold fast to the promise of God in his word. We are not destined for this. But we don't have to shake in our boots and be scared and, and read this and just want to no, know. We walk confidently because we are, know that we are his. I mean, the very cross tells us that. Our sin, God poured out his wrath on our sin when our sin was put on Christ. That's what it means that he's our propitiation. He satisfied the wrath of God for us. Paul talks about that. John talks about that. Hear those apostles saying, you don't have to walk timidly with the sovereignty of God. Know who you are. And I think even for us as the church, knowing that, okay, yeah, we're not going to walk through this, but we're just trying to walk through the week. We're just struggling to get to Friday, right? Understand who you are in Christ. Because a lot of us are okay, like, I, you know, again, as a youth pastor and a senior pastor, like, not many of us, and it still happens, struggle with our past. We come to the Lord and we understand his grace. He's forgiven me of my past sin. The biggest struggles that I see are the current realities. 
the current sins that we have. We act like his grace isn't sufficient for it. Yeah, I know Jesus forgave me for all the things that I have done, but, but the things that I continue to do and I'm trying, and it's like, you don't understand grace. And take it a step further. What about the things that we will commit, that we will do? Think of how complete his grace is. Because we'll say it theologically, that the grace of God, the blood of Jesus, paid for our past, present, and future sins. We'll say it theologically. But how, how many of us truly walk in the reality of that? Even as we talked last week, I ticked off one life group leader in a good way when I ended talking about loving our enemies. I don't want to do that. <laughs> Me either. And wouldn't you find it, our Lord telling us, commanding us to do the things that we don't want to do, it almost sounds like we need to walk in faith and trust with him. But think of it this way. Jesus, with his 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, he knew Judas was going to betray him, right? Anybody want to say that Jesus didn't know that? No, he knew. But he treated him in such a way that the other 11 had no idea. And why do we think that he treats us differently then? He didn't even treat Judas in a way. Because when they were at that final dinner and, and Jesus says those things like, hey, the, one of you will betray me, they all went around the room and said, is it I? Is it I? Is it I? Like, if that was me and I knew ahead of time that one of you were going to betray me, like, if I was Jesus and had the 12, like, guess who would have been carrying all the firewood, right? <laughs> guess who would have been first in line when Rome comes rolling up wanting to kill one of us? Yeah, kill that one right there. Not you specifically. Sorry about that. <laughs> I just kind of kicked in the, yeah, like, wow, he called me out. He killed me. I would have treated Judas absolutely different than the other ones. You want to talk about how to love your enemies? And Jesus treated Judas in such a way that the other disciples had no idea that it was him. And for some reason, then when we think of how Jesus wants to treat us, we act as if his grace is not sufficient. So going back to the top, if you're struggling with any kind of sexual immorality, his grace is sufficient. If you're struggling with the lust, his grace is sufficient. If you're struggling with gossip, his grace is sufficient. Because it's not the, it's not, you know, we, we always talk about our sins, and it's not the murder, you know, none of us in here are the Pablo Escobar of drug running and stuff like that. It's the respectable sins that we allow into the church that we're okay with. A little lust and a glance there, a little gossip and a word there, a little division, disunity there. His grace is sufficient. And we need to understand that. We need to walk in that fullness. Because when you look at Satan and you see the fullness of what he wants to do, he, you think of one of the descriptions we have of Satan from the Old Testament is he's the worthless shepherd. And Jesus, even talking about himself being the good shepherd in John 10, 10, he says, I came to give life and life abundantly, but the thief came to still kill and destroy that worthless shepherd, the Antichrist, wants nothing more than to still kill and destroy your life. And he's going to be allowed a, a pinnacle time to do that. And that's what tribulation is, in part, because then God's going to pour out his wrath on him. But until that day, he has us in target, lining up with fiery darts, just wanting to take your life. He wants nothing more than to still kill and destroy your life. And the church, we need to understand that. 
And we need to view our sin that way. So not only from a God's point of view of sin, like we talked about last week, we need to understand what sin is from almost Satan's point of view. The very thing that is going to break fellowship with Jesus, the very thing that's going to cause division and disunity in the body, which is a testimony of God's faithfulness to the world around us as a body that is walking in unity. Nope, I want them to have a bad example to the world around. And we've all heard of that. Churches that are horribly broken and walking in a lot of division, like the community hears about that. Even in my first few months here, I said, we're not gonna have any division. Like, we'll have problems. Like, we need cow kids workers, we'll have problems. We need more candy for the trunk or treat, we'll have problems. But we will not have any division here. I will not allow it. We are called as the body of Christ to walk in unity. And so Satan wants to do nothing more than to still kill and destroy. He wants to destroy your life, your marriage, your relationships, your relationships with your kids. He doesn't care. He'll use anything and everything, and he never takes a day off. And so we have to understand that, that bittersweet of, yes, we walk in obedience to Jesus because of what he's done for us and the life that he's bringing us and the life abundantly that he has. But we also walk in obedience and trust. Why? Because we know what sin will do to destroy our lives. We have to see it for the fullness that it is. And when we keep running back to our sin and the same ones over and over and we're not putting up any guardrails, we don't have accountability and we're not fighting against it, Proverbs would say, you're like a dog running back to its vomits. And we just go running, tail a wagon, lapping it up again and again and again. And the whole time Jesus is standing there, I have a better plan for your life. Would you walk in faith and trust? Because we as the church, I'm going to say this, let me clarify it. I think sometimes we get too caught up on salvation. Because a lot of times we just, we put our faith and our trust in Jesus for salvation. That's commencement. Like when I graduated from college, they said that's your commencement ceremony. We're not celebrating what you ended. We are celebrating what is about to begin so when you give your life to Jesus and, and we have that moment and we baptize you, we want to celebrate what God is going to do in you. Now, yeah, there's a, uh, the other side of it. Yeah, there's a death to Nick. BC Nick is dead and gone, and, but we're raised to new life. And the focus is the commencement of what God wants to do in and through you. And do not keep running back to the very things that Jesus died on the cross for. Don't run back to the very things that you know are bringing destruction into your life that is stealing your joy, that is stealing your relationships, that is stealing the love that he meant for us to have. Flee from those things. Walk in obedience. Walk in trust do we not believe that he has our best interest at heart? We don't even have our best interest at heart. Anybody ever make a stupid decision? <laughs> I'd be like, this morning, right here. I came to church listening to this guy. No. <laughs> we don't even have our own best interest at heart. We all make stupid decisions. Can we not trust him who is faithful? That even when we are faithless, walk in obedience, but there's grace when our flesh fails us. And so there is going to be a day where this is going to absolutely be destroyed. And the whole book of Revelation is leading us up to that point where that burden of sin will be taken off of us. 
But while we wait in the tension of the already, we're saved by the blood of Jesus. Past, present, future sins, saved. I am secure in Christ. I have the sealing of the Holy Spirit upon my life. And if you've put your faith and your trust in Jesus, that's you. So we're in between the already and the not yet. He has not returned. He has not brought a culmination. We live in the tension. And even though we're not going to experience some of these things, but it should encourage us that even the fight starts now because he wants to come back and find a bride ready or ready in purity, which is not a message of the church in our culture. He wants to find a, bre- a bride ready in obedience and in righteousness that she is in dazzling white. Your life matters. Walk in faith, walk in trust, walk in obedience to him because the best is yet to come. Pray with me. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we just thank you, Lord. Thank you for an opportunity to come into your house to dig deep into your word. And even in the parts of scripture that we struggle with that we don't know, that can be confusing to us, let it not trip us up in the things that we do know, that your grace is sufficient, even in our weaknesses. But I pray that we, as your church, that have put our faith and our trust in you, would keep our eyes fixed on you, that we would walk in this new life with you, that we would be your hands, your feet, your heart into this world around us in the times that our past want to try to boil up in our heart and our minds, times that we want to doubt our salvation, times that we want to doubt your work in our life, Lord. Calm that storm in our hearts with your grace and with your mercy and with your love. Let us know who you are and what you have done for us and and how we are complete in you but that work in us, Lord, I pray, would only facilitate a work through us, knowing that there are people without a relationship with you. Stir in their hearts. Use us to invite them into a saving relationship with you, Lord. Let us be fruitful, effective vessels in your hands. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said...